Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, a lot of economic data to digest this week on the inflation front. And, you know, we've got the CPI yesterday, PPI today. Um, I guess the takeaway for a lot of folks is pretty darn good as it relates to the Federal Reserve. But let's talk to somebody who does this stuff for a living. Jennifer Lee, Senior Economist and Managing Director at BMO Capital Markets. Jennifer, again, a lot of inflation data this week. What is your takeaway? Um, first of all, good morning and thanks for having me on. My takeaway is that finally, 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 all of these Fed rate hikes are making an impact on inflation, bringing it down to that what I used to think was the elusive 2% target is finally starting to happen back down to a two-year low for the headline. PPI, we saw this morning, uh, I was just glancing at some of the details, but looks pretty good. Only up a tenth for both the headline and the core and down to, uh, I think it was like three-year lows or something for the on a year-over-year basis. So again, all those Fed rate hikes are starting to kick in and we're finally starting to see the uh, the fruits of their labor. We're finally starting to see it, but we are still not at that 2% number. Uh, what do you think might be the catalyst to finally get us down to, to the Fed's desired inflation rate? I think it will have to take, well, first of all, just in terms of our Fed rate outlook, I mean, we're still looking for that um, Fed rate hike next or in two weeks, I guess, on July 26th. Um, you know, even though we're seeing this, you know, um, promising inflation data, um, the fact that Wages are still rising, running pretty hot. Job demand is still pretty strong. Housing is still has already found a footing. Business investment is is, is decent. Consumer spending took a little bit of a breather, breather last month, and but the month before that, they were they're uh, running hot as well. All that sort of sets the stage, I think, for another rate hike um, in July. And this slower inflation data, I think, gives them the the door to or, or gives them the the leeway to sort of talk about moderating the pace of rate hikes needing more time to assess that economic landscape that they've been talking about lately. Uh, and this will do it. Um, and of course, but keeping rates at these restrictive levels will help bring down that level back down to uh, inflation back down to 2% eventually. But, you know, definitely not a rate cut story just yet. All right. So that's kind of where I, I think the market's probably trying to go. I think the market's probably discounting, you know, a, a July rate hike and then, you know, a pause again. Um, the question then becomes, how long is that pause? And is, is that a 2024 event that we might stay at these levels of rates? So our, again, first official forecast is just one more rate hike and, and that will be it. Yep. Um, again, base case, but then staying at these levels. And so I don't think rate cuts are going to be a story until probably mid 
2024. We used to talk about, you know, early 2024 for rate cuts, but now we're thinking a little bit later. And that's because we're also shifting our call for that that elusive slowdown um, again. Um, so now we're looking for more softer growth in around Q4, Q1. Now, so around that turn of the year as opposed to Q3 and Q4. So you just can't argue with the data. It's been yep. very resilient overall. You know, it's again, difficult to to argue with it. So we're pushing out that, that slowdown a little bit by a quarter. Yeah, and another thing that you note is that the greenback is struggling a little bit following some of this economic softness, hitting a 14 month low, I believe. Uh, to what extent is dollar weakness part of your calculation for what our economy is gonna look like in the second half of the year? The U.S. dollar has been or had been running super strong up until you know yesterday, and so we're finally going to see that dollar weakness start kicking in, and we're seeing it, and it's also helping because a lot of the other central banks are not yet ready to um, uh, hit the pause button just yet. You know, aside from uh, the Bank of Canada, you know, I think we're they're probably that's probably it for the Bank of Canada for the for the rest of this um, year. RBA looks like they're almost done, but you've got the ECB and the Bank of England are still going whole hog on that rate tightening front. Um, so that's also going to boost their that. So that's also helping their uh, uh, their currencies at the same time with the flip with the flip side of the weaker greenback. So can we take the recession talk off the table right now? Official recession? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I, we've always been in that soft soft landing, mild recession, moderate recession camp, but we were never in that hard landing camp. And now, I mean, it's, it is quite possible that we will see, and some people always say, what the heck does that mean? But, you know, low landing. I, I At the very beginning, I used to say hard landing, soft landing, no landing, and it's possible that we could start seeing things glide. And, you know, it's like nothing is impossible, but this is kind of looking more possible. But at the same time, the longer they leave rates up in, the, in, in that restrictive territory in order to get CPI back down to 2%, we'll probably need to have that breaking in the economy. Well, there's the recession for all of us, and then there's the markets, right? And they don't always agree. Do you envision us seeing a little bit more of a risk on trade in the second half of the year after the Fed does potentially start to uh, tone down and soften the rate height cycle that we're seeing? We could see, that's a good question. So we could see risk on because of the fact that the, uh, the, the Fed is going to stop start talking about leaving rates as is more firmly as opposed to talking about needing more time but at the same time why are we why are they talking about needing more to, or uh, uh, staying on hold it's because the economy is finally starting to slow and again this is when you're going to start to see softer data um more starting to talk about the, that recession again or at least that soft landing coming into play in the fourth quarter or so so it's 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 going to be a little, a little bit of a mix i don't know which one is going to outweigh the other because again yes it's good news for the markets that the fed's not going to keep tightening but at least at the same time it's bad news because that means that the economy is slowing and it's not needed anymore so i guess one of the issues for a lot of investors is just kind of you know, we think beyond 24, I mean, yeah, beyond 23 into 24, 25, what kind of economic growth do you think is, is reasonable for an economy uh, that has dealt with this much inflation? So we're probably going to see at least some sub below average, for at least for a little while. So we, you know, for this year, we have about 1.7% um, growth. And that was a little bit higher than we had originally because of this delayed um, uh, slowdown. But we, for next year, we've got, like I, I think it's a half percent growth, which is obviously very sluggish. Um, and then for the year after, we're going to start seeing some improvement as the rate cuts start kicking in. But again, at this, I think we're probably going to see some sub 
average growth, at least over the next few years. And, and where do you think that that sub-average growth is going to be the most prevalent in the coming years? In terms of where, by, by country or? Yeah, by yeah, sector, like or? in terms of um, demo and geographic. So I think the U.S. will probably be just, again, because America's you know, still going to be the strongest with um, all the different positive fundamental factors behind it. I think the U.S. will still emerge um, probably stronger than um, uh emerge at a faster pace, I guess, from this reset, from the slowdown than everyone else. The, the areas where I'm going to be a little bit more worried will be Europe and the UK, only because, you know, they've already had the other issues, you know, that are not related to pandemic, you know, like Brexit, for example. At the same time, you also have higher inflation and higher interest rates staying longer, uh, higher for longer there. And they're, again, they're still going whole hog on that tightening front. I think the ECB minutes today were alluding to the fact that, you know, they're more governing council members from the ECB are thinking about September. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's a bit early, but you know, that's something that, you know, it's becoming more of a reality uh, possibly in the next, in the next little while. Jennifer, we also got the, another initial jobless claims number today came in better than expected uh, and showing a decline from, from, from last week. Again, just another data point on what is kind of a, a very solid labor market. What do you make of, of this labor market? Does this surprise you at all the strength? Um, Broadly, no. And then, I mean, it's still strong, but at the same time, it is starting to soften, you know, that, um, you know, 200,000, 209,000 increase uh, that we saw in payrolls was still below expected. But like I said before, any during any other given year, it's still a very solid number. But I think there are still some other issues that are coming in play, like, again, demographics, people retire, changing retirement patterns, people retiring earlier, um, people having fewer kids, you know, so um, all the, and then of course, the aging of the, de of the, of the global population, all that feeds into tighter labor markets. So this is an issue I think that's going to be playing on for some time. It's not going to be like what we were, what we saw earlier, like half a year ago, but at the same time, it's not going to be, um, as loose, I guess, as you know, one would expect. Um, it was interesting. I was looking at the NFIB yep. um, survey um, earlier this week, and I was looking at like over the past decades. Like you know how the they were talking about the right. the single biggest problem that you're reporting. So over the last decade, I think the uh, inflation, of course, it was like up and yep. down, but overall it was still pretty modest, being right. the, uh, the the inflation being the number one problem, but. Labor market, right. labor quality yep. was like still owned around. Yeah, Jennifer, we're going to have to wrap it up right there just because of time. We appreciate getting your thoughts. Jennifer Lee, senior economist at BMO Capital Markets. This is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Tech Talk today, a good one. Uh, we have our folks at Huawei Technologies, Steve Geisler, U.S. Chief Intellectual Property Counsel, uh, and Andy Purdy, Huawei USA Chief Stra- Security Officer. They joined us for a roundtable on Huawei's 2023 Innovation an IP form at its Chinese headquarters today. Uh, Steve, before we get to kind of what you guys are doing at your uh, forum today in Shenzhen, China, talk to us, Steve, what it's like at your company dealing with sanctions, particularly the U.S. How has that impacted your business? So my business, uh, I'm, I'm a lawyer within the, the Huawei corporate family. So uh, for me personally, it means more work. Uh, it does, <laughs> however, mean as as an american i have to always be mindful of the export control and the, the sanctions laws uh, because i i work in intellectual property that does of course put some constraints on me but by and large my day-to-day job deals with patents which are uh publicly known of course the word patent means open so i i deal with technologies once they've already become public and i deal uh, a lot with licensing with with other companies and so my day-to-day job is not impacted uh, nearly as much as if I were, say, an engineer uh, working within the Huawei corporate family. Okay, well, because you're a lawyer, I know that you are not going to answer this question, Stephen, but just to throw it to you, what does Huawei's uh, return to the 5G phone market look like, and what does the uh, smartphone business continue to look like for Huawei given these sanctions? I, I, I will definitely give you the lawyerly answer, but but the correct answer. My my job really is not to predict; it, it's just to prepare. So if Huawei were to uh, return to the 5G phone market, I need to make sure that we have the licenses in place, uh, such as the the 5G standard essential patent licenses uh, with our licensing partners to make sure that we would allow uh, for that. Huawei previously did have 5 5G phones, so we have most of those patents uh, patent license agreements already in place. So I, my part, my role in terms of preparation uh, for such a contingency is, is already underway. But in terms of, of predicting and in, in the, uh, the sales visibility of our product mix, uh, people like Andy certainly can, can address that. But for me, I, I prepare, I, I don't predict uh, because All right, of so, the nature so- of my job. So, Andy, let's 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 bring you in here. Andy Purdy, Chief Security Officer for Huawei Technologies in the U.S. Talk to us about what you guys are doing uh, with this innovation and IP form uh, in Shenzhen today. What are some of the big products and services you guys are talking about here? Yeah, this is a a part of our our bigger effort that uh, you touched on with Steve a moment ago. Uh, Given the situation that we face in the United States and around the world, we've been trying to and we've been successful at adjusting our business strategy and changing our portfolios uh, with a huge historic investment in R&D, over 25% uh, of our global revenues, so that we can customize our products for our carriers, our enterprises, uh, and our consumers. But the three key things of technology that we are embracing that are part of uh, this program today are digitalization, 
intelligence, and carbon neutrality. So our focus as a company has been on connectivity, computing devices, intelligent auto solutions, and uh, digitalization of power. And you can see that in the example of we talk about AI, the Pangu uh, AI 3.0 that we're going to be talking about at this conference, which is heavily focused on weather uh, and the Nature magazine has just issued a, a major article about weather prediction. It's very exciting about how AI is, is making going to make every industry more productive and efficient, and it's going to reshape all industries uh, with AI. So our focus is really on industry, industry AI. So, Andy, just from the tech, technology standpoint, the commercial standpoint, what are your leaders in China telling you about you know, kind of their, their strategy for dealing with the West, whether as customers, as a supply chain, um, what, what scenario are you operating under? Like, how do you create a three- to five-year business plan? Well, as I said, we have, we're, we're leveraging the convergence of technologies, 5G, cloud, sensor technology, AI, catalyzing the digitalization of industries that we've been working on and actually moving toward 5.5G, which is some of the other uh, things we're going to be talking about today. So we're heavily investing in what we can do in terms of developing technologies to help the telecom carriers raise their capabilities to to supply 5G and hopefully 5.5G and and to help the customers of the industry sectors around the world, uh, such as you can see the benefits of the the Pangu 3.0. So given that, I'm curious if this kind of overall push into IP licensing, does that mean that your focus is more on back-end technology versus more consumer-facing products? Steve, you may want to touch on this also, but no, it, it's the smartphone issue has been what was dramatically affected, the inability of American companies to sell the non-sensitive 5G, tech, the 5G chips for our phones. So everything else we've been emphasizing with the digitalization, and we've been able to grow our enterprise business uh, by 30% in 2022 uh, using the themes of digitalization and digital transformation. We've leveled off the drop in our consumer business, and we expect our carrier business to to, to uh, meet expectations. Steve, do you have any thoughts there as to kind of how you guys are, are navigating some of the, from a patent perspective? Yeah, so as, as Andy said, the so the IP actually is somewhat detached. Now, it's not completely detached. We, we typically are going to be patenting the same technologies that would be in our product mix. However, just because we don't sell a product in the United States does not mean we're not going to get a, a U.S. patent. So, for instance, as of the end of last year, we had 120,000 patents globally that were active, uh, including about 22,000 active U.S. patents. We had about 40,000 Chinese and, and European uh, patents each um, at the end of last year. But in terms of, of the, the patenting, we just, for instance, uh, Wi-Fi 6, which is is the, the new version of Wi-Fi uh, that, that is now being commercialized, it's out on the market. Huawei has about 20%, 19-20% of the standard essential patents that would be used when someone is making, using, or selling a Wi-Fi 6 enabled product. Yeah. So that is the type of R&D that, as Andy said, we, we actually have increased R&D funding up to 23 billion U.S. dollars last right. year alone. Right. And so Huawei has no choice but to continue to innovate and still has product sales. However, those product sales, geographically, the, the, the footprint has changed since yeah. five years ago. 
and, and also the product mix. Uh, there, there's a different focus for sure. uh, within various industries. Andy, in our final minute with you here, uh, given what uh, Stephen was just talking about with uh, ideation and R&D, what do your plans look like for 5G chip procurement uh, domestically in China? Well, we have been continuing to emphasize the diversification of our portfolio, of our supply chain, so that we can meet the needs of our customers. Uh, I don't have any comment uh, yet on the, the explosion of news stories on, on, on what you're talking about, um, but we are proceeding on the assumption that we have certain limitations and we're going to continue to grow our businesses in other areas, such as smart mining, smart roads, smart ports, electric power, railway, and moving into 5.5G, which is very exciting. Frankly, you know, when you talk about the one piece of, of, of uh, technology innovation, our, our leaders, Ken, who our vice chairman, has estimated, we look at AI, that 98% of all AI is going to be industry and some agriculture, and only 2% is consumer. And the focus recently has been on, on consumer, the generative AI. But it's going to be much more important than that to the world. All right, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Andy Purdy. Chief Security Officer for Huawei Technologies and Steve Geisler, U.S. Chief Intellectual Property Counsel. And I know both of these gentlemen got their law degrees from the University of Virginia, so wahoo wah. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We're welcoming Randy Schwimmer into the studio as well. Always love chatting with Randy. He's co-head of Senior Lending, and he's the Senior Managing Director at Churchill Asset Management. Randy, one of the many reasons we love speaking to you, because you're an expert in this private credit business out there, which has been such a hot market, uh, getting lots of capital, uh, and has really become a big part of the capital markets, really passed since the great financial crisis. How is your business today in what appears to be a market that is seeing inflation moderate, Maybe taking the recession story off the table a little bit. How's that? How are you seeing that in your business of directly lending? Yeah, first of all, thanks again for having me on. So I did some homework just for you, Paul. So I looked for the <laughs> first half numbers for our business to sort of get a sense for how we're doing. Turns out, and we have a senior debt business and a junior capital business all with on, you know, under the Churchill banner. We did 175 deals in the first half of the year. Okay? Really? $5 billion across those two platforms, right? So I, I was like, whoa. How big that, is your firm, by the way? So we're like total committed capital of about $46 billion. Jeez, and And then you throw our Arkmont sister company in Europe. They're another $20, 25000000000 billion. So, you know, but the thing that mm. surprised me a little bit is that despite a lot of the softness in M&A that we saw in yep. the first half, what's driving our deal flow is the kind of migration from public credit to private credit because the banks have been a bit offline with some of the liquid loans. They, they don't have clearing price. They don't have CLO formation. Uh, a lot of the cash is coming out of retail funds, not going in. And so they're a bit offline. And so a lot of that activity has come to the direct lenders. So that's helping us. And then we have the scale. We can commit, you know, four or $500 million dollars per deal and get stuff done. So those combination of things makes it right now pretty attractive. So so back when the Fed was at zero and the 10-year wasn't even at 2%, uh, the demand for private credit from investors was very high because a huge, huge premium with not a whole lot more risk for better returns. Uh, 
now that you get 5% plus on corporates and munis are not that far behind, how does that affect your investor base? What, yeah. what are they looking at in the world of private credit yeah, as, a, as an asset class? So Barry, that, that's exactly the question that comes up at these investor meetings. Uh, and the answer is that the opportunity in private debt is not necessarily a timing thing because mm -hmm. to your point, it was very attractive two years ago. It's more attractive from a pure yield perspective today, relative, still relative to corporates. The question is how long will that attractive corporate and high yield bond uh, trade last? If what Paul says is true and we're starting to see a little softening in the numbers, which we saw today, mm -hmm. and it looks like the Fed might, you know, maybe they raise once more, maybe they, you know, maybe it's once and done, then at some point rates are going to start to come down. What's going to happen for investors who are looking for long-term income streams is they're going to see those corporate bond rates start to come back down again. And eventually, whether it goes back down to where bonds were kind of 3 and 4%, the way they were two, two years ago, or something in between where they are now, it's going to come down. Whereas the illiquidity premium that investors in private debt get has been the same throughout that period, roughly 300 basis points. Mm -hmm. So whatever liquid is getting, we're getting 3% more. We, we've been discussing the window that has been opening up to extend duration, lock in higher rates after the better part of a decade of you know, bonds not really generating a lot, suddenly, whether it's private credit or corporates, these have become, this whole asset class has become a whole lot more attractive, right. but who knows how long that window is going to be open for. Correct. And so the thing about private debt is that you can trace the higher yields and better structures and all the things that you know uh, back for decades. So the opportunity really isn't a timing issue. It's more of a strategic issue you decide that you are going to have some part of your portfolio always in private debt and so what we're seeing now with our investors an increasing number of them are saying you know i want 5 10 15 percent whatever that number is always in my overall portfolio i have room for fixed income i've got room for public equities i've got room for real estate but i really want some core assets in private debt but does that allocation start to change as people maybe get a little bit of FOMO for things like an AI rally, for example? Well, what's happening in the public markets is that things will come and go depending on where the current trade is, to your point. Yeah. And we saw, obviously, rally in technology stocks and so forth. But what happens is, depending on what's going on with the rest of the economic climate, some of those... Uh, opportunities tend to fade. Uh, we certainly saw that with crypto. We've seen that, you know, in other areas, uh, the SPAC rally, sure. for example, that we were talking about here in the studios a year or two ago. And the, the thing that investors really want to focus on now is stability. Okay, so yield is great, but stability of income is even more important to them. Um, and so go, going into it with a manager that has a track record to deliver these stable higher returns is probably foremost in their minds right now. Hmm. What, what sectors do you guys like these days? You did a gajillion transactions in the first six yeah. months. Are, you, are some sectors you're, you really like here or some you're avoiding? I knew you were going to ask this question, Paul. <laughs> and so I went back and the, by far and away, it's business services. Yep. Yep. Because and I, things, things that companies like landscaping companies, I, I like to use this um, because 
regardless of whether a building is occupied or not, you still have to mow the lawn, plow the snow, head, you know, trim the hedges. And so landscaping companies, because they uh, are, have to be there 24-7, alarm companies, same thing, security businesses, anything where you have consistent cash flow and growth over a long period of time, those are the kinds of companies we like, healthcare, technology, software, uh, logistics businesses, anything that requires moving boxes around right now. I mean, I don't know about you, but my family's ordering more boxes, mm-hmm. delivering to the front door. And all the support, the back office, the middle office, the, related to those kinds of businesses are doing well right now. Hmm. Re- really quite interesting. You know, last year, before uh, we really had a, a firm grasp of exactly how fast and far CPI would would fall. A lot of people piled into private debt, especially with a lot of younger companies. You guys have been around for a long time. Uh, I'm wondering how you look at the competition in the space and and how many people kind of top-ticked the market last year. Yeah. So one of the questions from a credit perspective is, you know, did you go in with companies uh, that are now hurting as a result of some of the dynamics Mm -hmm. inflation-wise you've talked about? And the advantage that we have is that we are uh, we invest only with private equity-backed companies, and so the amount of cash equity that they're putting into these businesses is like 65% of the total capital structure, mm-hmm. which is a record high. The other thing is, you know, they have their own money at stake. They're helping us to find the best companies, and even in that universe, we're still just kind of picking the best of the best. Mm-hmm. So we see a thousand deals a year, and we do 60. And so from that perspective, what we're looking for is to sift through the ones that don't have that long track record, sift through the ones that are not cyclical, that don't have customer concentration. We just turned a deal down this morning because the business has only been around for five years um, and had customer concentration with three main customers. If you lose any one of those three, you're in trouble. So our job is to really pick winners. I understand you're a tennis fan. Yeah, going to Wimbledon this weekend. Are you? So yes. gonna, what are you going to what, what are you going to see? Women's finals. The women's finals. Yes, sir. All right, we had one of the semifinals that just uh, got done earlier. So we we have one finalist in there. Uh, but it's funny. That should be great. That's like, have you been there before? I've never. This is my first time. It's awesome. You're going to love it. Um, I'm, I'm not playing, but I am going to watch. <laughs> All right. All right. Very good. Uh, Randy Schwimmer, co-head of Senior Lending, and he's the Senior Managing Director at Churchill Asset Management. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success.
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We are really excited about our next guest here because we've got Laura Modi coming on. She is the CEO and co-founder of Bobby. Uh, This is an infinite formula company. Uh, It's organic. They've got some big name investors on the list here with Gwyneth Paltrow at $22 million. And we're excited to talk with them, uh, Paul and Barry, because they've got some big news uh, for us. This company uh, acquiring Nature's One. We don't have the exact details in terms of the finances here, but it was a $70 $70 million Series C round of funding to acquire Nature's One. And this is part of their overall strategy to kind of diversify uh, their their holdings here. So I think we have Bobby. We've got, we've got Bobby CEO on the phone here, Laura Modi. Thank you so much for joining us, Laura. As I was just explaining, this acquisition of Nature's One, how does that acquisition factor into your strategic push uh, to increase domestic access to infant formula here in the U.S.? Yeah. Hi. Lovely to be back with you guys again. Look, this acquisition is, is so much greater than Bobby and Nature's One. The significance of our two companies coming together is the biggest diversification move in the history of U.S. infant formula. And after last year's shortage, this is what the industry needs. We need more competition. We need more options. And this allows us to be able to serve more of the market over the coming years. So what does Nature's One do? So talk to us about this, the strat, what this company does and kind of how it dovetail, dovetails in with kind of your business at Bobby and the, the baby formula delivery business. Yeah. So Nature's One is actually, you know, pioneers in the world of organic impurity. They've been around for the last 26 years. They've spent the majority of their time focused on toddler formula. I would actually refer to their founder and CEO really as the godfather of formula here in the U.S., an organic formula. He had the foresight back in 2019 to build a state-of-the-art infant formula facility in Ohio. And he had no idea what would come in 2022 when we were hit with the national infant formula shortage. But in 2022, at the end of last year, it got completed and he became the first new infant formula facility to be built in 40 years from the ground wow. up in the U.S. Hmm. Laura, Barry Ritholtz here. So it sounds like putting together a couple of these parts, you're going for scale so that if there is any sort of disruption in the future, you'll be able to meet consumer demand. How large do you have to be to avoid the sort of problems that we saw during the pandemic and the lockdowns? Great question. You know, this is not just about um, building one facility and, and calling it a day. We need to build redundancy. This industry needs resiliency so that we don't go through this again. So to date, we've been using a contract manufacturer to make our product, and we're going to keep doing that. We're going to double down with them. We're going to stay with them longer while we also build the resiliency to get our own facility up and running to also produce more product. The downside of last year was that there was few facilities making too few products. 
So when one of those facilities is no longer able to produce product, we're going to be experiencing a shortage. Now, I will admit that Bobby is not going to be the cure-all solution to ensure that we avoid this, but I'm going to do my damn best to make sure that Bobby's never in the center of another shortage again. And as many of our listeners know, we started speaking with Laura back in the pandemic again when this shortage came to the fore and we needed to get real smart on the baby formula business real quick. And Laura was kind enough to to speak with us several times during that process. So it's great to see Laura and Bobby continue to grow here. Uh, so, Laura, give us the lay of the land today. How have things changed in the, the greater you know, baby formula uh, business as it relates to logistics? Are we in a better place today than we were you know, a year ago, two years ago? Well, I'd like to think after yesterday's acquisition, we, we are. But the shortage itself is, is beginning to subside, which means shelves are getting stocked and there's access to more formula. But it's spotty. And it's spotty because consumer buying behavior has also changed. So there may be some shelves that remain out of stock while others are plentiful. What we need to do is we need to adjust to this changing landscape and consumer behavior, which includes what are the products that they need now and where do they need them? That, I would say, is we're still somewhat in a crisis from that respect. The other thing that hasn't changed is we're still putting out products from the same few facilities. We are not in a position as a country where we can turn around and confidently say that if another uh, bacteria hit a facility that we wouldn't be in this again. I actually think we are truly one bacteria away from having another shortage like last year. And the only way to get out of that is through the incentives and investment made in further domestic manufacturing. In our final couple of minutes with you, Laura, I want to switch gears a little bit because I'm so interested in your history and your uh, previous life before Bobby when you were working at Google. Uh, And you've talked about day trading as an important part of your time there uh, that helped you to buy your first home. And that's why it was so important to you to kind of open up investment into Bobby for women in particular. Uh, Talk to me about the other ways that being a trader yourself has impacted the way that you run the business. Great question. Did not see that coming. Um, (laughs) I'm a big fan of the cut because I used to work there. So that's where I'm getting that. (laughs) I love it. Um, Look, I, my, my passion is really in women having financial independence. And I think in a, in a lot of ways, whether it's trading or just understanding the financial system, women are often left in the dark and behind. Uh, it can be sometimes seen as an old boys club, whether it's from the nomenclature to just the tools that exist. So one of my deep passions is making sure that we are in, uh, we are growing a business to allow women to become financially savvy. And you see that in many of our practices today. Uh, one of those is that I think it was in our fundraise for our Series A, we opened up a small portion of the round to allow our own customers, moms, to invest in the business. Yep. And instead of having a, a minimum dollar to be able to put in, we actually created a cap. Okay. And that allowed 700 moms to be able to invest in the business. Yep. That's a fa- I mean, fascinating story all around here. We're glad we get to stay in touch with you, Laura, and keep us up to date what's happening in your business and your industry. Laura Modi, CEO and co-founder 
of Bobby. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We'll be streaming on that thing called YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search Bloomberg Global News, and that's you get the video feed there. All right, the absolute top media analyst on Wall Street, in my opinion, and it's an informed opinion, Michael Nathanson, founding partner and senior research analyst at Moffat Nathanson, joins us via Zoom. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, I got to start with Disney. You know, back in the day, I told a a uh, professor buddy of mine in Harvard Business School, I got a case study for you, how to really do an effective uh, succession planning. And that was Bob Iger, the Walt Disney Company. I'm thinking the Tom Staggs, Jay Rosullo set up that nice race. We thought everybody on the street was happy with it. We thought, boy, these are two good people. And then it didn't work out. And Bob kept extending and extending and all the executives left. And here we are again. So what do you make of what's going on at Disney? Yeah, thanks, Paul, for your nice, nice comments. That really means a lot. So thank you for that. You bet. Um, there's a lot to unpack here, right? So start with where you began, which is, believe it or not, there's there's not a bench yet here that's ready to take over leadership. I think part of it's that the company is in such different businesses and different births, life cycles, right? So Parks, the guys you mentioned, Staggs and Rizzolo, you know, Staggs was CFO, Rizzolo was the head of Parks. Parks has a different type of business model than media. And now streaming is their, their big bet. And streaming is a completely different you know, business model. So it's such a broad set of assets. And you need someone who's, who has got creative uh, sensibilities or trustworthiness. It's, it's, it's a hard job. But to your first point, yeah, it's kind of amazing that this lead into it, there hasn't been a a bench of emerging candidates besides Bob Chapek, who in hindsight was the wrong person. We, we thought that almost right away. So that continues, right? The, the hunt for the next executive yep. continues. We've got more time on his hands, but that's just part of the story, I think. And so, Michael, the bigger issue, well, not the bigger issue, but the operating issue for Bob Iger and the management team is, boy, how do you manage this transition from the traditional business where you had cable companies and satellite companies you know, giving you steady profits to now the streaming business where the economics are really uncertain. Let's start with ESPN. What would you recommend to Bob Iger and the board that they do with ESPN? Yeah, so Paul, start with ESPN and it's right. You know, when you covered the stock way back when, it was it was a driver of free cash flow, a driver of profitability. Um, ESPN, and you'll laugh, ESPN to us is a, it's really unclear how ESPN could work on a standalone basis as a direct consumer service, right? The, the price point has to be quite high. Sharing will be more seasonal than it is now. We think the best idea is to either create a sports-only bundle with other sports-led programmers or put sport into the Disney Plus Hulu bundle, right? So you either have to go all in on sports or use sports strategically. It's unclear at this point what Disney wants to do. I think they really want to maintain the ESPN brand as a standalone app, we think. But even today when Bob was, was talking about it, it's unclear what the path looks like going forward. We've studied ESPN for a long time. You know, we used to be more sanguine about the future of ESPN, but cord cutting has gotten so so bad and the cost of sports keeps rising. Mm. 
that it's not an easy, clear answer that you, you know, for your question, our best bet is to try to keep the bundle alive by shrinking it down to sports only. When I say the bundle, what remains is the pay TV bundle. You so shrink it down to sports only. So when you talk to institutional investors, uh, Michael, just about, you know, the big media companies, um, how confident are you that they can make this transition, broadly speaking, the industry to a streaming economic model? Because if I'm an investor, I'm like, I just don't know. And as a result, I'm not going to invest. Yeah, for people. Um, so if you read our work, we had a note out today where my partner, Robert Fishman, covers yep. a lot of media names, equated today's linear TV to radio. And that hurt me. About <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> And it feels like that, right, Paul, yeah, where the uncertainty, the uncertainty index is so high for the future and the pivot here seems so complicated that we're finding just a lack of interest, even for Disney, right? So, so we upgraded Disney when Bob came back at 90 bucks, stock went to 120, that's our price target's back to 90 again. But even Disney has lost kind of the, the goodwill of the institutional investors that are out there, right? So. There's just a lot, lack of interest here, like radio, which is a sad commentary. But a lot of this, Paul, and I've talked to you over the, the many years, has been self-inflicted, right? Didn't have to be this bad. They licensed their content to Netflix. They then all pivoted hard to streaming without much thought about profitability, and they killed the golden goose, right? It's really sad. Like there'll be a textbook written about how this was, you know, a lot of this was self-inflicted in terms of the wounds in this industry. I think in your next life, you can write that book in your spare time, Michael. Hey, let's talk about a name that just jumps out at a lot of investors, maybe of some interest, Paramount. What does this company do? What does Sherry Redstone really want to do with this company? Because, you know, we kind of thought that they didn't have the scale before. Uh, nothing's changed. Maybe even it's become more pronounced, that risk. No, so we and Robert, had a, we have a sell on Paramount. Um, you may be shocked to know or not know that they, they generate no free cash flow mm. and they're highly leveraged. And the bull case is simply that someone is going to buy them. Yeah. You know, Warren Buffett's an investor. And like that to us is like, if that's all you have is a bull case, then, then we're worried about it. We think just they're over leveraged through cable networks, the lack of profitability in streaming. It's just a tough hand they have. And I think, you know, they, get, you know, they just got the dividend last quarter. And I think if you move to like this arms dealer idea where you just start selling your content, I'm not sure there's a there there at the end of the day. Eventually, you see Netflix, Amazon, Apple make their own content. So maybe they'll buy the Mission Impossible. Maybe they'll buy, you know, um, the Top Gun from you. But they they won't license all your content because they don't have to anymore. So I think you pick that one. That that's a tough hand, Paul. We we're quite negative on the outcome there. Hey, Michael, this is Madison. A question about this, and it's funny, I was talking to my friends last night who all really hate the Paramount app, uh, so not a great sign for them. But when you look at a Netflix <laughs> in particular, uh, they've really gone all in on creating this really cheap uh, reality TV content that can, can air for them and does really, really well. Uh, Disney doesn't really have an option for that necessarily do you see disney going into a cheaper content creation strategy in order to compete with the likes of netflix it's funny we've studied that question by looking at netflix netflix viewership about eight to ten percent of their viewership would be unscripted reality every every month every quarter eight to ten percent it's not a big number but to your point the stuff they have probably outpunches 
you know, what the costs are making it. Disney has national, so Disney Plus has Nat Geo, Hulu has The Bachelor. Our vision is that at some point, Disney Plus and Hulu will get combined. Mm. Nat Geo really hasn't sparked, it looks like, the same level of engagement that Netflix's reality shows have. But we think that at some point when they combine Disney Plus and Hulu, do your comment, they have to lean more into you know, unscripted reality. Um, you know, again, The Bachelor is made by Warners, but it, it's not even the same. It's a good observation. On the opposite side, Warner Brothers, which has now Max, has great HBO stuff, and now all the Discovery content. They probably have almost too much reality programming there. So as a, I think Netflix has figured out the perfect blend. I think to your point, others will have to follow that blend. And if there isn't enough headwinds for just strategically for the industry now, they've got you know potentially a pair of strikes, uh, one from the writers and now potentially one from the actors. Boy, how big of a problem is this for the industry, Michael? Do you think these things get resolved? I think it's a huge problem. I, I think it's happening at a time of great uh, um, you know, difficulties for the industry, a time of structural change. The directors have settled, the writers have not, and the, the actors likely will go on strike. I think it's going to be really damaging. And the problem, I think, is that the sides are so far apart, given that the writers are still on strike. And the economics of the industry, as we've just talked about, is really, really challenging. So I think there needs to be um, some realization that there needs to be common ground here, something that has to give. I worry that this goes on through the summer is going to really affect the fourth quarter and all the new programming for broadcast. And some of the broadcast networks that we cover will be in a really bad position. And it's also going to hurt streaming companies that are looking for new, fresh content by the first half of next year. So it has real implications here. and uh, But it doesn't seem to us to be set, settling anytime soon. Yeah. In fact, it feels like it could drag on, Paul, which is not its not a good outcome for anybody. Yeah. Hey, Michael, just lastly, love to just get your, your, your top pick here. What are you guys and your, your team kind of out there with your clients? Okay. So in media, I'll separate media and internet, right? So we've keep adding coverage. So Robin's Media World, our top picks would be Fox, because Fox is just sports and news. And Disney for a long-term view that 90 bucks a share, you know, if Bob Iger can be successful, you know, we think there's $30 of upside. So yep. Disney, Fox, top pick. And we have Paramount as a short. In internet, we keep pushing Meta, which yep. has been a really Great nice call. year for us. And Alphabet, because we think the AI fears of hmm. ChatGPT killing Google search are overstated. So, you know, we stay with those behemoths. And, uh, you know, that's been an easy call. And we think that there's this real dispersion of digital advertising yep. is going to put up really nice growth. And linear networks are going to have a really hard time growing, Paul. Yep. A la radio back <laughs> when, when you and I were young, we were younger men at that That's point. That's right, exactly. All right, Michael, thanks for giving us a couple minutes of your time. We really appreciate it. Michael Nathanson, uh, again, one of the, the top analysts uh, covering the media space or just in Wall Street in general. Founding partner and senior research analyst at Moffat Nathanson. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
we had some earnings today. Pepsi. Uh, I'm a Coke guy, but I'm just as happy drinking Pepsi. I'll be honest with you. I have no real loyalty. Uh, Ken Shea, he does this stuff for a living. He follows uh, all these consumer companies. He's a senior equity analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Ken, thanks so much for joining us here on Zoom. What did you learn from Pepsi today? Hey, hi, Paul. <clears throat> well, we learned again uh, the power of Pepsi's brands. You know, I think um, everyone respects their brands and their ability to uh, pass on price increases. But I think there may have been some underlying skepticism that it could continue for so long. Uh, and it has. And, you know, the second half of the year, the company is mentioning that commodity costs may ease a little bit. It may not be as aggressive with pricing. I think that's giving people a little relief. Uh, you know, pricing has been a double digit for a while now with this company. Um, but they're investing in the brands. So what we learned is that the company has really powerful brands. They're not afraid to invest in them and price accordingly. And to what extent do you see that price power, pricing power continuing through the second half of the year? Because in the last earnings cycle, they were sort of like bragging about their ability to to increase prices. Is that going to keep happening? You know, that's the million dollar question. Um, you know, I, I'd be reluctant to bet against them, though. Um, you know, this earnings report was their 18th beat in a row. They have an, a, an ability better than their peers uh, to manage their uh volume and pricing such that revenues keep coming in strong they invest quite a bit their capex is a little bit higher than their peers but they invest or a manufacturer they own their bottlers too they invest in productivity it's really showing in the bottom line so if they can continue that top line strength and can continue to what they're doing in the second half then we're looking at um you know another high single digit kind of eps gain in the second half Hey, Ken, is there still any vestiges left of the old cola war of years gone past? Do they still fight for market share, Coke and Pepsi, or is it kind of fizzled out, for lack of a better word? Hmm. Well, you know, they they don't speak about it that much, PepsiCo, um, market share, because they really are a full, you know, sweet portfolio beverage company, whether it's the Gatorade sports drinks, or now they're investing heavily in energy drinks, uh, the juices still, the teas. Now alcoholic beverage, you know, yep. a venture with Boston beer. It's small, but they don't get caught up too much in the carbonate uh, cola aisle uh, share like Coca-Cola is much more concentrated in as much. All right. We've got like 20 seconds left with you here. But in those final 20 seconds, I, I, I did want to ask you about uh, the downside of the dollar. Do you think uh, Pepsi's incredibly excited about that or am I overblowing that a little bit? No, you're not. I mean, it is. It's uh, been uh, Kirch has been a drag for the last oh year, two or so. They're still seeing a modest drag in the in the second half. They may be a little conservative given the dollar weakness uh, of late, and um, we, we we think there's still going to be a slight drag, but we think it's a good thing for them. You know, yeah. all yep. those being equal, yeah, less sure. drag the better. All right, Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Ken Shea, Senior Equity Analyst. He covers all the consumer products companies, a lot of the, the beverage companies, the tobacco companies, the weed companies. So he's got the whole portfolio there, and we appreciate getting a few minutes of his time there. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Madison Mills, Paul Sweeney here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. 
A little bit of an M&A trade here today. Exxon to buy Denbury for $4.9 billion in CO2 pipeline push. Let's get the latest on this transaction. Kevin Crowley joins us, senior U.S. oil reporter for Bloomberg News. Kevin, are you based in, are you in Houston? That's right. Yep. I'm in Houston yet yeah, where um, uh, Exxon has just relocated. You, okay. How hot is it going to be in Houston today? Uh, I think it's. I think we're going to be at 100, but it feels like it's more like 110 or so. So we're staying firmly inside in the air conditioning. And judging by your accent, you're not a Houston native. I mean, you don't. You're genetically. You're not made up for this weather, are you? That's 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 right. Once it once it <laughs> once it gets to about 80, I start to I start to melt. All right, so, well, uh, hang out. All right, hang out. <laughs> yeah. Hang out in the I'm air conditioning there. Talk to us about this Exxon deal. What is Denbury, and and why is Exxon shelling out 4.9 billion dollars? So it's a, it's a really interesting deal. It's really uh, it's really a low carbon play for um, for, for um, Exxon. Uh, Denbury um, was is a um, is what's called an enhanced oil uh, recovery uh, specialist. So they uh, they move they use carbon dioxide um, in in old wells in order to produce more more oil. Now they have a key asset here, which is the uh, which is a thirteen hundred hundred mile uh, pipeline network, which is the largest carbon dioxide pipeline network um, in the U.S. And Exxon really wants this pipeline uh, network in order to um, to boost its uh, its carbon capture business. It's a really it's a really unique asset that Exxon saw as uh, critical to its uh, to its whole low low carbon strategy, and that's why it's really. Powerful. Paying this uh, five billion dollars what, for, for what this. is a carbon dioxide pipeline? What is it transfers carbon dioxide, but from where to where and for what reason? I don't understand. That's right. That's right. Thing. It trans right. It transports carbon dioxide. So um, so Denbury Denbury um, used to use um, carbon dioxide uh, to push into old oil wells um, in order to extract crude. This is this is a very mature uh. business. It's a very reliable business, but it's a very high cost business. And, and actually, Denbury got um, Denbury went bankrupt in uh, in 2020, and so is has been on the recovery track for the last three three years. Now, with um, with the world's focus now on carbon emissions um, and particularly the the passing of the inflation reduction act these these pipelines that move carbon dioxide are now being repurposed for carbon capture so exxon's plan here is to capture carbon emissions um, along the gulf coast which is full of refineries chemical plants some of the biggest uh, concentration of uh, industrial emissions in the country they want to capture those carbon emissions move them along the denbury pipelines uh, and then bury them um, in the ground um, really you bury carbon dioxide. That's right. That's right. It's called carbon. It's called carbon capture and sequestration. And it's oh, the boy. sequestration um, part of it, which is which is where the magic happens, really. Where so instead of emitting carbon dioxide into the air, you can um, you can capture it and you can bury it underground, where they say it will stay forever. So it's it's uh, it's a way of it's a way of being able to um, um, keep a refinery so. or chemical plant uh, going, but without the uh, without the emissions. Okay, so you mentioned the Re Inflation Reduction Act. How much of this acquisition is directly related to that legislation? Yeah, so it's ab it's absolutely critical. Um, so I spoke to, uh, spoke to uh, the Exxon executive, kind of leading this this morning, uh, Dan Aman, um, who used to be at General Motors. Um, he he said he said the the Inflation Reduction Act was a, was a key catalyst. And uh, yeah, without the Inflation Reduction Act, I think this deal would have been a bit more a bit more challenged. And uh, and what the what the Inflation Reduction Act does really is it provides uh, tax credits 
for this whole process I talked about, capturing carbon and then burying it. Um, and, um, you know, Exxon can do this. Exxon think want to do this on a, on a really large scale. Um, and those those tax credits will be really critical for Exxon to really justify it to their shareholders as to as to, as to why they're doing it and to, uh, and to ultimately make profits from this process. Kevin, kind of help us understand the, the differences, to the extent there are differences between how maybe some European energy companies like British Petroleum or Total view the transition to clean energy versus American energy companies like an ExxonMobil. What are the differences in how they're pursuing it, how, how, how they view it? Right. So, so there was there was a key split really around sort of four to five years ago, where the uh, European majors, uh, particularly BP, Shell, uh, Total, to a lesser extent, decided that they were going to, they were going to go hard into um, renewable energy. They were not going to be oil and gas companies anymore. They were going to be energy companies, and they were going to really focus on things like wind, things like solar, become become big in power generation. Um, whereas the uh, the US oil majors were very, uh, were much slower to embrace like um, uh, net zero targets and things like that. And uh, they, they've decided to really stick much more closely to oil and gas and their low carbon strategies were much more about things that they were specifically good at, and Exxon sees carbon capture as one of those things, which is which which it has unique capability in it. Now, what's interesting now is uh, we've seen this year in particular, the European majors have somewhat sort of pivoted their strategy um, to to come much more closely towards the towards the U.S. Uh, players because they found that investing in renewables was very very competitive, and that and that the the, uh, the returns were really not as good. Is in there are plenty of people who can do wind. There are plenty of people who can do solar. Um, there are plenty of existing um, power utilities all all across the world. And BP and Shell really found that you know competing with those large established players and specialists in those areas was was not really a very high return uh, business model. So yeah. they decided to uh, to pivot a bit more back to uh, to oil and gas and focus on on the uh, the low carbon areas where they can add some unique value. That's certainly that's certainly Exxon's strategy. It sounds like a critical part of Exxon's uh, future-proofing strategy as well. But I'm curious then, why are we seeing a little bit of negativity when it comes to the day's trade on the news? Uh, the stock is down by just over two percent at the moment. Well, yeah. Well, they're they're paying they're paying all in stock, so they're paying five billion dollars in stock. Um, so that's dilutive for the for, for the shares. So yeah. I think that's probably the technical reasons why why Exxon is trading is trading down today. Now Exxon's been buying back uh, um, an enormous amount of stock um, um, over the next sort of eighteen months. You now they had a record uh, record profits last year, so they're buying back a lot of stock. So this obviously dilutes that uh, dilutes that mechanism. Um, so that's that's why Exxon is trading down today. What's interesting is Denbury is trading down. Now, normally the acquired company yeah. would trade up and some commentary in the in, in the markets that um, some analysts think this is, is Exxon is, is is paying is paying kind of a too lower price uh, for Denbury. So that's uh, that's that's certainly an interesting one to watch. All right. So, Kevin, you're an Englishman in Houston, um, but in Houston, it's energy is business and job one. It's business number one. I got WTI crude oil just under seventy six dollars a barrel here. A little bit of a rally. What are they when you go to the local pub equivalent in Houston? Uh, what are the folks talking about in terms of where they think oil's going in terms of the price? Mm -hmm. 
Everyone thinks it's going up. It's an oil town. It's always, <laughs> it's always going up. We think it's going to the moon. Hundred dollars, hundred dollars a barrel. Um, it's 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 just it's just a matter of time. Um, so yeah, people <laughs> people very 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 bullish um, as usual. Um, and I think I think you kind of have to be to be in the oil business. It's a it's a tough. Uh, a tough business lots of uh, lots of booms and busts so uh, it's certainly it's certainly the place for um for uh, optimists how about nat gas i mean natural gas has been a, a different story what's the feeling about that yeah well nat gas is is <laughs> we've basically got too much of it yep. um you know huge amounts of gas comes out of comes out of the permian basin which is primarily an oil basin so you know natural gas is the um is essentially a byproduct um so so really people are really waiting for the um liquefied natural gas um, export facilities along the Gulf Coast to come online. Uh, we had a huge project sanctioned um, um, just last night, actually, in Brownsville, um, uh, South Texas, uh, $18.4 billion project, massive. Um, so that's that's going to that's gonna swallow up um, so some of this excess gas and export it around the world. There's been three other uh, final investment decisions made, um, or sorry, two other final investment decisions made on, on similar f- facilities this year. Year alone, um, and really the whole the whole goal of this yep. is to get sort of U.S. gas on the on the water um, around the world. You know, helping to replace Russian supplies, especially to Europe. All right, uh, great reporting as always, Kevin Crowley, senior U.S. oil reporter for Bloomberg News. Again, an Englishman in Houston. Good luck with that. Uh, before that, he was in uh, Johannesburg, and then before that in London. So he's been all over the place for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.